hard to follow up. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We'll continue our study there. Uh, We'll be looking at a a little bit longer section today, verses 37 through 56. 37 through 56. Sort of a lot of little short stories in a row that that we're going to try to, to draw all together, okay? So let's read this together. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. For he is my only child, and behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed for them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, all is the one who is is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume him? But they turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your holy and inerrant word, Father, we need you to speak to us in a mighty and powerful way. Lord, I cannot preach this, I cannot present this in a way that that would truly penetrate to our hearts. Lord, only you can do that by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, we cling to that promise that, that you give wisdom to those who ask, Lord, that you are faithful to meet where two or more are gathered in your name, that, Lord, you are faithful to speak to your people. We ask that you would do that now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. From the mountain to the valley. Well, I've often heard it said that, that once you reach the top, there's only one way to go, and that's where? It's down, right? You know, it seems that that past every mountain peak, there is a valley that's waiting on us, waiting to to bring us back down to earth. Now, I realize that's not the most optimistic place to begin a sermon, but it is the reality that I'm afraid I'm about to have to face. All of you know that the two teams that I have rooted on the hardest and the longest have both won championships in the past three or four months. It is a wonderful day. It is a great time to be me. All of the heartache has finally come together, and we have these great experiences. I got to experience it with Sam, 
It was just really a, a wonderful time. But having said all of that, I said to someone just the other day, I'm afraid that I need to just stop where I am and let somebody else deal with the valley that surely is coming on the other side. You know, the Mississippi State football team is helping get us there very quickly right now, beginning to experience it. So I think maybe if I just stop, maybe I'll be where I need to be. Now, some of you who root on other teams are going, wah, wah, just get over it, you know, move on. But, but when you're at the top, it's hard to come back down, right? It's hard to come down. So, now we have to imagine that in some way, and in fact we know that this was the dilemma facing the disciples after our passage last week, particularly for Peter, James, and John, who were on that mountain of transfiguration, who, who had seen Jesus' glory up front and personal, who had seen Mo- Moses and Elijah there as well. We, you remember, Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let, let's hold on to this. Let's cling to this moment for as long as we can. He wants to stay on the mountain peak. This is something wonderful. Maybe the height of human existence, a creature in the presence of the glory of his creator. And so he wants it to last. And honestly, who could blame him? Surely from that vantage point, from the top of the mountain, it seemed that to move forward would only mean to move downward, right? It would only mean to move to the valley that, in fact, we do see come here in our passage today. Here in these five little short stories that that Luke records for us, reality comes crashing back down on these men. Now, it comes in the form of their own inadequacies. It comes in the form of their own sin. But in each one of these scenes, the disciples, they're going to get it wrong. And as quickly as they went to the mountain, they're going to come back to the valley. Now, the question for us is how do we process these stories? How do we consider this in a way that will be beneficial to us, okay? Certainly, on the one hand, we could consider them all individually, and there's lessons that we could learn in our own lives from the mistakes that the disciples make. We could all say, hey, we need to do a better job at this. We don't need to do that thing that they did. We need to try to watch out and make sure that that we are living the opposite of what they do in these stories. And that would be a legitimate application. But what I want us to try to do today is get more of an overarching view. What is Luke's purpose? And really, what is God's purpose in taking us from the mountain, from this peak, all the way back down immediately. The next day, it says, all the way back down into the valley. What is God trying to show us here? Maybe today, maybe we can learn, along with these disciples, some lessons here in this valley. So let's look at it together. Now, there's five stories, so we're going to take each one and briefly look at it and then kind of give an overarching message, all right? First, notice here a lack of faith. A lack of faith, and you see it there in verses 37 through 43. Now, having come down, it says the next day, Jesus and his disciples, they get right back to the business at hand. They get right back to the business of ministry, and it doesn't take very long before they're confronted by this father who has a son who is very sick. You see it there in verse 38. It says, Teacher, he said, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child, and behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. 
It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him alone. Clearly, this is a man like so many that we have come into contact before who is desperate. He is desperate for help. But notice that that last little verse there. Notice how it ends in verse 40. He says, and I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Look, that's an interesting little tag on there. It's an interesting thing that he says. Remember, this chapter began with Jesus sending the disciples out, right? It begins with them coming back, recounting their great stories of success as surely they healed people, as they healed people with demons, they performed exorcisms as we see here. Surely they had seen boys and girls and men and women who were in far worse condition than even this boy, and they were successful. And so the question for us is, what has happened here in that time? Why are they unable to do what Jesus has given them the power and the calling to do? Well, look at verse 41. It says, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Here, Jesus, he reflects the words of Moses uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and in verse 5. There, Moses is speaking about that first generation that came out of Egypt that didn't enter into the promised land, and he calls them a twisted, perverted generation. Jesus is echoing those words. But the question is, who do they apply to? Who is he speaking of? Now, we have some options, right? First and foremost, there's the man who brings his son, right? He is the one who is immediate in the immediate context. We have to ask, what drove this man to Jesus to begin with? What drove him past the disciples who were unable to do what he wanted them to do to Jesus now? Surely it was some level of faith, right? He believed that Jesus could do this great thing for him. And in fact, in Mark's gospel, Mark confirms this truth. This is the same man who will say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Here's someone who has more faith than far uh, many of the people that Jesus will come into contact with, right? This is a man who seems to trust in what Jesus, at least to some degree, trusts in what Jesus can do. So I don't think it's this one that Jesus is referring to. Maybe it's the crowd in general. And certainly, Jesus will refer to that, that crowd, the Jews, in this way many times, right? He'll say that they are faithless. He's, he'll say that they are, are perverted, that they're twisted. But it seems here that the context demands someone closer, another faithless group that Jesus is referring to. So who does that leave us with? It's the disciples. It's the disciples who Jesus is talking to here. And again, Matthew's account confirms this. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 17 and look at verse 19 in this same story, At the end, it says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have a faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, in some ways, this is incredible, isn't it? That their faith has fallen so far so quickly. 
Literally, they have just seen, at least Peter, James, and John, and surely they recounted what they had seen. They've seen Moses and Elijah on the mountain. They've heard the voice of God. They have seen the glory of Christ. Surely it should have cemented their faith. But here they are, a very short time, found lacking. Lacking in what? Lacking in the faith that they had had before, the faith that they had confessed, the faith made real before them. It's now weak and lacking to the point that they can no longer fulfill the calling that Jesus has given them. They can no longer heal this one that is right before them. It's no wonder that Jesus says, how long, how long will I be with you? If we can say such things about our Lord, you have to imagine, at least in his human nature, he was thinking, will they ever get this? Will they ever be able to understand the things that I am saying to them? They had a lack of faith. Now, if this was all we had here, then the descent would be pretty far already, right? Off of the mountain, into the valley, it would be pretty far. But notice, this is not the only place we find them lacking. We've seen a lack of faith, but secondly here you also see a lack of humility. Now we're going to come back to verses 44 and 45, but but let's look at 46 through 48 there. We read that, that an argument has begun among the disciples of who is greatest. Now we don't know how this, this started. We don't know who, who it is that, that started this argument. Uh, but, but you have to imagine that, that it is fairly childish, right? And it's a fairly childish argument. It kind of makes us shake our heads. But notice how Jesus gently, but very powerfully, rebukes them. He takes a child, a child who in that culture often would have been marginalized, right? Often would have been the lowest. They would have had very little rights. Certainly they would have been overlooked, if nothing else. And he says, whoever receives a child, cares for, provides for, loves a child like this, in my name, receives me, and not only me, but receives the Father. And then he drives it home there in the second half of verse 48. He says, for he who is least among you, he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Whoever will stoop down, whoever will take the lowest place, whoever will sacrifice themselves, even for the weak, even for the lowly, whoever will follow Jesus, in other words, do as he has done and is about to do, love even the lowest, says that, that then he has received me. It is he who is great. Friends, again, this is a powerful picture But remember, this is no more than Jesus has already said to them and he's already said to us, right? Verses 23 through 27, remember he says, take up your cross, follow me, sacrifice your life completely for the sake of others and for my sake. It seems that these words of Jesus, they have gone in one ear and they have gone right out the other. Here, far from losing themselves... They're trying to puff themselves up. They're trying to say, look how great we are. No, I'm the greatest. I am the greatest among you. Friends, following Jesus requires humility. And here, here, they are found again to be lacking. And so we move from the mountain 
down to the valley. We've seen a lack of faith. We've seen a lack of humility. And then thirdly and finally, you see a lack of understanding, a lack of understanding. Again, back to verses 44 and 45 and then 49 through 56. And you see it in these three stories. First, once again, they misunderstand Jesus's ultimate purpose, what, what he had ultimately come to do. Look at verse 44. It says, let these words sink in your ears. Now, I love that wording because it highlights, it highlights the point that he's trying to make. But also, as parents, we completely, as teachers, we completely understand the words that Jesus is using here. He's saying, hey, listen to me. Get this in your head. This is what is important. And again, the message is the one that he has tried to communicate to them throughout this chapter. He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus wants them to understand that the miracles, as great as they are, the exorcisms, all that he's done, the teach, all of that is great. But ultimately, what they need to look to, ultimately what he has come to do is go to the cross. Ultimately, what he's come to do is die and be raised again. And they've got to get that into their heads. But notice, in verse 45, it says they do not understand these things. Now, certainly, it says there that it was concealed from them to some degree. But we have to, have to imagine that they are slow to perceive. They're slow to pick it up because this is not the only time Jesus is going to say it and he's going to continue to say it over and over and over again and they don't get it. They don't understand Christ's ultimate purpose. Now look, I said that we were not going to try to apply these specifically too much, but friends, this is too good not to apply. Reality is, is so often in our lives, we're the same way, right? We, we understand somewhat of what Jesus has done, but we don't understand his ultimate purpose. We're not looking to his ultimate purpose. We're looking to our lives here and now. We want things to be easy. We want things to be better. We don't realize that what he has planned is an ultimate reality, a bigger and more glorious reality, one that is surely to come. He is pointing us ahead, and so we always are focused on that ultimate purpose. But secondly, notice here that they misunderstand who their enemy truly is. And you see that there in verses 49 and 50. As being uh, described for us very well, they see somebody else casting out a demon in Jesus' name. And John, he, he attempts to stop them from doing that. Now, again, it's hard to fully understand why this was problematic for John, but I think it may stem back to that argument that they had just had. You know, they could probably reconcile the fact that, okay, I'm not the greatest among these 12. There is no greatness among us. We're all equals here. But outside of our little group, surely we are the greatest. Surely if anybody is going to listen, they're going to have to listen to us not to somebody else who was out there performing these works. But notice what Jesus says to him. He says, but Jesus said, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. In effect, this man had become their enemy simply because he was not in their inner circle. Or maybe he was doing things a different way. But Jesus says, no, no, if they are casting out demons in my name, 
And they are not your real enemy. The real enemy is Satan. The real enemy is the one who we are trying to prevent from doing these things. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, he makes a great point. He says, Christians in every period of church history have spent their lives in copying John's mistake. They have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way for, from working for Christ at all. They have imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. We forget that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly of all wisdom and that people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospel preached and the devil's kingdom pulled down, though the work may not be done exactly in the way we like. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong. I love that. Friends, one of the effects of the persecution that surely we see coming to the church is that it's going to force us to identify who our real enemy is. We spend so much time arguing with one another over denominational lines, over things that, that while they are important, they are not ultimately important. There's a time coming soon where we are going to have to learn to stand together, learn to stand with our brothers and sisters, even if they don't believe or are, are function just exactly like we do. If they're believing in Christ, if they are resting in him, I need to be careful here because there are important distinctions we need to make. If they are resting in Jesus, whether they worship exactly like we do or not, whether they do everything like we do or not, we're going to have to learn to stand together. Stand together in Christ's kingdom, against his forces, against Satan. The disciples misunderstood this, and so they attempt to stop one who is doing the work of the Lord. Thirdly, they misunderstand Christ's immediate purpose. They've misunderstood his ultimate purpose, but finally they misunderstand also his immediate purpose. And you see that there in 51 through 56. Now we'll try to get this as short as we can. They, they go into this city of the Samaritans, and they won't receive Jesus, right? They won't, they won't receive him. And there's lots of reasons that may be a possibility. One, they've heard maybe of the cost of following Jesus, and they don't want to do that. Uh, maybe they've heard that he's going to die and they don't like that idea, but most likely it's because they don't believe that Jerusalem is a place to worship. You remember in John chapter 4, at the woman at the well, she says, our fathers say worship over here, you say worship over there, where do we actually worship? And the point is, is they all thought that Jerusalem was not a valid place to go. And so they don't want to follow Jesus, they reject him. And notice, this does not sit well with the disciples at all. They do not like it at all. In verse 54, they say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, it's hard to know exactly what they were thinking in that moment. Maybe this is prejudice against these Samaritans who they don't like. Uh, maybe they're trying to defend their Savior. Maybe they, they feel like they're Elijah being able to rain down fire from heaven. And maybe they just want to bring the judgment that they surely think needs to come. But notice, notice how Jesus responds. He gives us his immediate purpose. He says, no, no, he turns to them and rebuked them. They went on to the next village. What they did not understand was that though judgment was surely coming, what Jesus had come to do at least immediately was to save sinners, was to save the lost, and even though these had rejected him, the time had not yet come 
for final judgment. There was still time for them to turn and repent. Like Jonah and the Ninevites, their time, the fullness of time, had not yet come. Now again, friends, this is, this is too good not to apply. We live in a world where we as the church, we want to go out and we want to rain judgment and fire down on everybody we see. But what has Christ called us to do? He's called us to take the gospel out into a sinful world. And even if people reject him, to pray for them, to pray for our enemies, to love them, to give them the truth of the gospel over and over and over again. Look, if anybody is going to bring judgment, it's him, right? He doesn't need us to do that for him. He can do it. And so we go out with the gospel. We go out to a world that lives in rebellion to him, and we preach repentance. We preach conversion. We give them the truth of Jesus. And so these disciples, along with faith and humility, they lack understanding. They don't understand his ultimate purpose. They don't understand their enemy, and they don't understand his immediate purpose. Now, I said at the beginning that I wanted us to to get a larger picture of what's going on here. And as we consider, you know, where these disciples have been, uh, it's amazing to see how in just a, fo- a, a few short verses and a short amount of time, how far they have fallen, right? Last week they were on the mountaintop, but now here they are sliding head first as fast as they can back into the valley. There's no cross-bearing, there's no sacrificing their lives They don't seem to understand much of what Christ has said to them up until this point at all. For whatever they had gotten right in the past, for how many steps forward they had taken, now it seems that they've backtracked over every bit of it. Here's the thing. I think every single one of us, if we've been a Christian for longer than a week, can understand exactly what it is that they're going through right now. Every single one of us have had those high moments, those experiences on the mountaintop where things become so clear and we're following Jesus so well only to find not in a very long time later that we've gone back into the valley, right? Our lives seem always to be these up and down hills and valleys in our Christian life. And the question before us is why? Why does God record these events this way? And why does he allow the pattern that we see here to be the pattern of our lives? One where we go up and then we come so far back down. Friends, I would submit to you that, that what we are reminded of here, that what our lives remind us of is that though God calls us, Though Christ calls us to bear our cross, though he calls us to give up our lives completely, what do we know to be true? We can't do it. We cannot do it. As much as we want to, as hard as we try, the reality of the situation is we can't do it. And so why? Why does God make that the reality of our lives? What has Jesus tried to point them to over and over and over again in this chapter? He's tried to point them to the cross. He said, get it in your ears. Hear what I'm saying to you. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And we have the perspective of being able to look back on that event. And why did he do it? To save us. He did it to do what we cannot do. He is the one who bears his cross perfectly. He is the one who has given his life 
completely to the Father and has now given His life completely for us. Friends, the reality is, is yes, He calls us to great things and we should pursue it. But if we ever look to ourselves completely, then friends, we've lost it. Our only hope for cross-bearing, our only hope for giving up our lives, for ever really understanding, is looking only to Jesus. He is the only one who can get us where we need to go. Friends, that is why union with Christ, that great doctrine that we so often neglect, is so important. That's why Paul says, Jesus lives in me. That's why he says it over and over and over again. His death is my death. His life is my life. Because if it's not, then we don't stand a chance. No matter how good we think we may be, no matter how good we've tried to be, if when God looks at us, if he does not see the perfect righteousness of Jesus, friends, we're in trouble. These disciples, they, they come face to face with that reality here in this passage. All of their self-sufficiency, all, all of their goodness, it comes crashing down. Friends, we're reminded that by God's grace, our failures, though they are discouraging and though we should seek not to have them, what do they do? By His grace, they point us, they lead us straight into the arms of Jesus over and over and over again. Now look, I'm not suggesting that we go out and sin so that grace may abound. Paul has addressed that and he says, may it never be. But I am asking you to come to terms with the reality of who we are this side of heaven. I'm, co- I'm asking you to realize that though Jesus calls us to these great things, If we try to do them in our own strength, we will never get there. It's only by that matchless grace that they sang about. It's only by His work that we will get there. It's grace that saves us. It's grace that keeps us. Remember last week, Moses and Elijah kept all the way till that point. It's grace that's going to get us safely home. And so friends, today I encourage you. Look to the cross, not to yourself, not to your works, not to the good things that you've done. Look to the cross, look to the empty tomb, look to Jesus, and don't for a second look anywhere else. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to to this time, Lord, it it is difficult to, to preach these things in a way uh, that is honoring to you. Uh, it's, it's difficult to preach this in a way that, that we don't begin to look to ourselves or we don't begin to give up hope completely. And you call us to neither one of those things. But Lord, the reality is, is we are sinful and we fail you in so many ways, in so many areas. And if we are honest, even for a second, we know that to be true. But Lord, by your grace, you have given us hope. But by your grace, you have given us a Savior. By your grace, you have shown us the great glory of this Jesus who now comes and stands in our place. And so though our lives may be up and down, the reality is, is that if they are resting in him, they are up. They are up and they will never be moved from that place because Jesus will never be moved from that place. If our lives are in union with this one who has given himself fully and completely, And Lord, we have all we will ever need. And so make us faithful people. Make us people who who act in love to to try to please you, to try to, to follow you.
But Lord, also make us people who always and forever keep our eyes focused on our Savior. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.